before we open the word together, I want to we're going to do a little, something a little bit different tonight than we normally would do. We get to uh, share in uh, a couple who are going to share marital vows tonight. So we're going to have a a wedding. And uh, I want you to bring up uh, Mark Roy and Marcia Copps. Would you guys come up, please? Now, I've, uh, Marcia, how long have you been coming to Hope? Uh, a little over seven years. Seven years. And uh, I've known Marcia just almost about that long. She has been for a long time uh, my favorite waitress at Tony's on the Pier. <laughs> and it's just it's a great delight to go there and to have her serve us. But uh, I've watched her and known her for a number of years here, as, you, as she said, seven years, just growing in our church and being a part of the church and faithful, faithful woman. And just a couple of years ago, she met a young man by the name of Mark. And uh, Mark began attending Hope, and uh, she introduced him to me. I wasn't too sure. And, uh, <laughs> but he kept coming and kept coming and went through my class and uh, received the Lord, made a genuine profession of faith, and have been watching him grow and mature over these past couple of years. And so... Uh, they'd asked me if I would marry them and in January, and I said I'd be happy to marry them and be involved in their lives that way. But uh, they're going to be moving quickly up to uh, Northern California up by... This weekend. This weekend, up to... Antioch. Antioch, okay. And it was north of San Francisco, right? A little northeast, about 45 miles. Okay. And so I said, well, you know what? They wanted to get married, and I said, all right, why don't you come, get the marriage license, and we'll marry you at our service. So we're going to do that tonight. And it's, going to, it's not going to be an actual, I mean, full-on wedding like you would normally have. It's going to be kind of informal. But I wanted Mark and Marcia just to share a little bit with you from their heart about marriage and about uh, just their relationship with the Lord and uh, what this means to them. So, Mark, would you take the lead there? May I hold this? Yeah. You, you can actually hold it. <laughs> I am amazed because the, the Lord has filled, filled glory into my lowly place. When Marcia found me, I didn't know where I was headed. And actually our first date together, she, she asked me if I wanted to come to Hope Chapel. And when I walked through those doors, I had no idea what I was getting myself into because she doesn't let up for a second. And I'm so glad she didn't because the direction I was headed wasn't any, any good place. And just in the last year, my whole life has turned around and the Lord has given me so much. And I look at this woman, and I owe it all to her. You know, she brought me the Lord, and, and he's delivered me from all the evil things of my life. And I'm not going back to where I was before. Amen. And she's going to make sure of that. Tell us a little bit about what you understand about a husband's role as a Christian now. Cooking, yeah. No. I'm ready to have the Lord put the words in my mouth to minister to my family as the head of my household. Me and Marcy are going to start a family, and it's going to be nice to raise a couple of children in the church like I see the children in this church. The Lord, the Lord works miracles, and he's, he's making a man out of me. For the first time in my life, I feel like I'm a man now, not a boy anymore off doing silly things. I've got some serious decisions to look forward to in my life with the Lord's blessing. Marcia, you share a little bit with us. Here. Well, um, I always, uh, as a little girl, wanted to get married and have kids, you know, most girls do. And... Um, the years went by, and um, it didn't happen, or I was never happy, 
ready to do it. It's still kind of scary, but anyway. Uh, well, friends of mine would say, well, Marcy, if you want to get married, you better hurry up. And <laughs> I go, well, it's not. It's up to me because it just don't happen that way. Well, why don't you go out and find a, a guy, I said. To my friend, actually, she's here today. Her name is Peggy. And I said to her, Peggy, if uh, the Lord wants, the, the man he chose for me is going to knock in my door. And actually, that week, we had a problem in the fireplace. And the man, one man came over to our house and said, see, <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I met Mark at a restaurant. And uh, first time I saw him was... He was been drinking, and I really didn't like him. <laughs> I, I got my girlfriend, and I said to her, let's go. Let's go out of here because this man is around us here. Let's go. And we left. And then the very next day, I went to ask my friend because he came to see the chef, and it's a very good man. And, and I said, Bill, who is that man that was here last night? He goes, who? I go, that guy. And then he goes, oh, Mark, he's a very nice guy. And I said, that's hard to believe. <laughs> well, God comes after us, doesn't he? And sure enough, about six months later, he put Mark right in my station, and I had to wait on him. I go, okay, here we go, Lord. And uh, actually, then I felt something in my heart for him because he was staring at the ocean. And I go, oh, my gosh, you know, what's going through this guy's mind? And he's been drinking. So the next following weekend, he comes again, Saturday. And I go to the bar, and he's sitting there. I go, oh, hi. And he goes, Marcia, huh? He remembers my name. Nobody remembers my name. And uh, he was drinking. And a week later, he remembers my name. I go, oh, okay, Lord, what's going on? Anyway, and then uh, he asked to sit in my station, and I um, waited on him, and then he wanted to have a drink after a while with me, and I said, well, I'm going to be closing. He goes, I have no plans for the rest of my life, but be here waiting for you. Oh, oh then I go, oh, my gosh. <laughs> then I said, I have plans. I thought to myself, I have plans for you. <laughs> 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 and the very next day when we're supposed to go for a walk, I said, well, Mark, why don't we go to church? And then he goes, well, if that's what you want to do, we'll go. And he's been coming since. Every weekend he dedicated his life to the Lord in two weeks that he came to Hope Chapel. And now he's a wonderful Christian man, and that's why I'm marrying him today, because I believe that the Lord wants us to be married. He touched my heart for this man, and this man is being a wonderful Christian man, following God in the Word. And he's beautiful inside out, don't you think? <laughs> Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about marriage, so come over here. <laughs> I want you two to face me, okay? Marriage is a very serious thing, and as we have talked about this time in your life and this state that you're entering into, something we talked about was being willing to accept each other unconditionally. And that's going to take everything you have and everything the Lord's going to give you. We know that marriage is a very, very beautiful estate that God has given. But at the same time, we know that our very culture is waging a war against marriage. We know that marriage is under attack. We know that our flesh is selfish, and it wants to do what it wants. It doesn't want to serve the other person. But the Bible gives us instructions about marriage, and I want to read these instructions to you just by way of reminder. We've talked about these things. And it's important that we rehearse them once again. Very specific instructions to the husband and also to the wife. I want to read to you from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 5, Marcia, the, the scriptures say that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. This is a time when that word submit is a very difficult received word. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their own husbands in everything. Your primary role is first to submit to his leadership in your home. We talked about that, haven't we? He reminds me of the day. Yes. <laughs> and Mark, Paul speaks of the husbands, and he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband has the much more difficult responsibility. God's going to call you and expect you to take the initiative at loving her, take the initiative at being involved with her, to be willing indeed to lay down your life for her. He goes on and he says to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so there's some very, very important instruction there. And also, the Bible says that, that each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and that the wife must respect her husband. So submission and respect are very, very important. Loving her as Christ loved the church, indeed, as you would love your own body. I want to turn also to um, the book of First Peter, which we've been studying through and rehearse with you from chapter 3. Marcia, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husband, so that if, even if Mark does not believe the word or is disobedient to the word, then he may be won over without talk, but by the behavior of your life. When he sees the purity and reverence of your life, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, or the wearing of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. <laughs> we talked about that too, didn't we? Yes. <laughs> Which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Mark also, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wife. Be considerate as you live with Marcia. Treat her with respect as the weaker partner and as an heir with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Love her. Love her and live with her in an understanding way. Be willing to submit to him, to his leadership and to your home, and to show him respect. Now, as we've read these passages, I want to ask you, are you... Are you committed to these propositions? Are you committed to love her as Christ loved the church and to live with her in an understanding way for the rest of your natural life until death shall separate you? I do. All right. Marcia, are you committed to be, are you willing to submit to him and to respect him and honor him yes. for the rest of your natural life? Yes, I do. Until death shall separate you? Yes, I do. Yes. The choice you're making tonight is a choice which there is no other choice. This is your choice, to marry one another. And nothing will come between you. Agreed? Amen. Amen? Amen. All right. Do you have rings to exchange? Okay. Why don't you put that ring on her, on her left hand? And say, I give you this ring. I give you this ring. As a seal of my promise. As a seal of my promise. I will love you. I will love you. As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. I will love you and show you honor. I will love you and show you honor. And live with you in an understanding way. And live with you in an understanding way. Until death itself parts us. Until death itself parts us. Marcy, I love you. Marcia, I love you. Can you put the ring on his finger? 
wrong hand. <laughs> okay, you tell him. Mark, I will submit to you as unto the Lord. Mark, I will submit to you as unto the Lord. And I won't nag you. And I won't nag you. And I will respect you. And I will respect you. And I will support you. And I will support you. And encourage you. Until death itself parts us. Until death itself parts us. By the authority invested in me, by the authority invested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by the state of California, I pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride. <laughs> Turn to the congregation. Mr. and Mrs. Mark Roy. exciting? Hallelujah. Now they're accountable to all of us. Married bliss now. Those of you who are married and been married a while, you want to encourage them, okay? Those of you who are sitting around them, just encourage them, say, go for it now, all the way, right? Okay, let's return to our Bible study in 1 Peter chapter 4. Studying verses 7 through 11 together, and I want you to read these verses with me one more time. Peter says, The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled, so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In those verses, 7 through 11, we again have a, what I think is a rich summary of our responsibilities as Christians, the responsibilities uh, we bear as we live our lives uh, as Christians. And this passage reminds me of the fact, and this has tremendous significance for our day and age, it reminds me of the fact that faith cannot be removed from the realm of real life. So many people are trying to separate the faith from real life, as as if you can separate the two. How many realize you cannot separate your faith from real life and from living life in this world? To put it another way, if I can say it this way, salvation is not just forgiveness of sins. Salvation is a new order of life. It is a new order of life. I say that because for many, salvation is primarily thought of, primarily concerned with, Uh, the forgiveness of sins. We talk about being delivered from sin. We talk about being delivered from guilt, uh, from death and hell. Uh, But when we understand salvation in a biblical way, we must understand that salvation affects a whole transformation of life. This is so, so important. The emphasis today tends to be on viewing salvation as merely just receiving forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. Come to Christ and and be saved. And we interpret that solely as meaning and implying that only our sins are forgiven. That, of course, is true. Most salvation thinking and preaching today seems to center only on that. And so the cross 
becomes the focal point. The cross is the point at which Christ bore our sins, is it not? The cross is the is that's there where we come to find forgiveness for our sins at the cross, do we not? It's the cross that has become the focal point for very, very many people. Uh, you might be interested to know, however, that as central as the cross is and has been in Christianity, it was not really the central focus of the early church. They didn't focus on the cross like we do. The early church saw much more in salvation than just the forgiveness of sins. Much more in salvation than the moment at which Christ died on that cross and paid the full price for our sins. The early church saw salvation as only beginning with the forgiveness of sins, leading to a transformed life and consummated being with Christ forever and ever and ever. It was a much fuller view of salvation that the early church had. Uh, When we think about Christianity, we often think about the cross as the symbol of our faith, don't we? Everyone wears a little cross, and we expect to see a cross in the sanctuary or a cross on the building, and the cross is always the focus uh, for many, many contemporary Christians. Interestingly, uh, not so with the early church, the first appearance of a cross in Christian art and Christian culture didn't occur until nearly midway into the 5th century A.D. That wasn't the focus of the early church. The early church focused on what great event do you think? The resurrection. It was the resurrection that the early church focused on. Consequently, its preoccupation was not with the point at which sin is forgiven... No, but the point at which new life begins and resurrection is that point. The early church had a much more comprehensive view of salvation than many modern Christians have today. Now, we have died with Christ spiritually, have we not? We have died with Him. In that death, the penalty of sin was paid. But remember, we arose with Christ to walk in what kind of life? Newness of life, didn't we? Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4? He says, we died to sin. How can we live in any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism, baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what? New life. A new life. So the early church focused on a much broader understanding, more more particularly focused on this transformation of life. Salvation is about a transformed life. To be saved then, not only for the early church, but to be saved for our perspective, for our understanding also, not just to have our sins forgiven, not just some transaction in which our guilt is relieved, but rather to be saved was to be delivered from the powers of darkness. To be saved was to be brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 tells us this. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of His Son whom He loves. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And lastly, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which we studied, he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of what? Darkness into his wonderful light. So, beloved, to be saved is to enter into an entirely new kind of life. A saved person is a different person. They are a changed person. They are a transformed person. It's not that they just have their sins forgiven, albeit that's true. It's far more than that. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he says what? He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Something has happened. A transformation has happened. A miracle has happened in that person's life. Salvation, again, is not just atonement. 
It is not just forgiveness. Salvation is regeneration. It is transformation. It is the imparting of a new kind of life. The life of God in the soul of man. That's what salvation is all about. It's a having a new life. A new life. Uh, I just can't help reflecting on Marcia's testimony about Mark just a little earlier. Uh, sitting at the bar, looking out the window uh, in, a, in a, I wouldn't say he's drunk, but he had had a few. You know, wonder, I, I imagine uh, a number of us have been there at some point in our life wondering, what's it all about? What am I going to do? Where, what about my future? What? And how wonderful it is to have someone come along and say, would you like a new life? Would you like a new life? Would you like a second chance at life? That's what it's all about, isn't it? So because that's true, the one who is saved not only has sin dealt with, but has a new desire to live that new life. How do you know you're saved? Because you, you have a new desire implanted in you to live that new life. I want to live this new life. I want to be different. It's not a matter of just saying, well, I, I you know, received Christ, my sins are forgiven, and you go on living as you used to live. The Bible says you cannot do that. It's practical impossibility if you're truly born again because you're not the same person. You are changed. That desire to live the new life arises from that new nature that's been planted in you, if I may describe it this way, a holy seed, the seed of the life of God has been planted in us. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. There's something different about this person. I can't go on living my life like I used to live it. I can't go on sinning as I did in the past because the seed of God's life has been planted in me. A new germination, a new change has happened and that leads to new desires. That seed produces something. It's called fruit. It's fruit producing. And that we know the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against all these things, Paul says, there is no law. These are things all generated by God living in us as we walk with Him. So when a person is saved... When a person is born again, they're turned from the old life, they're turned from the old ways to a new life and new ways that are the expression of that new life. Again, how do you know if someone is saved? Just by their words or by the fact that they're different? They're changed. And they have a new desire, a new appetite to live that new life. To put it simply... You see works in their life, good works, godly works, spiritual works. These become the inevitable result of the transformation that God works in a person who is truly saved. James says much much the same thing in his letter. As you've read the book of James in the past, James says that these works are inherent in the nature of saving faith. They are inherent. They They go hand, hand in hand with saving faith. Where you have saving faith, you have works, because salvation is not just forgiveness. Salvation is transformation. A new nature, a new life, with new desires. Martin Luther described saving faith. I thought this is a marvelous phrase, so I I include it in your notes. Martin Luther described saving faith as a powerful, life-altering force. Saving faith, saving faith, a powerful, life-altering force. Listen to what he said. Listen to how he describes it. Quote, Oh, this faith is a living, busy, active, powerful thing. It is impossible that it should not be ceaselessly doing that which is good. It does not even ask whether good work should be done. But before the question can be asked, it has done them, and it is constantly engaged in doing them. But he who does not do such works is a man without faith. 
He gropes and casts about him to find faith and good works, not knowing what either of them is, and yet prattles and idly multiplies words about faith and good works. All he's doing is talking about it, talking about it, and talking about it. Faith is a living, well-founded confidence in the grace of God, so perfectly certain that it would die a thousand times rather than to surrender its conviction. Such confidence and personal knowledge of divine grace makes its possessor joyful, bold, full of warm affection towards God in all things created, all of which the Holy Spirit works in faith. Hence, such a man becomes without constraint, willing and eager to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer all manner of ills in order to please and glorify God who has shown towards him such grace, unquote. What a tremendous testimony about saving faith. Beloved, we must see salvation. If you haven't seen it and, and stood back and looked at the magnificent picture that salvation really is, saving faith, we must see it as a transformation of a life that makes meaningful and desirable all the commandments of the Word of God. There's a desire in my heart to know God's Word, to know His commands, and to obey them. Because why? That's what God created me for, or I should say recreated me for. Hasn't He? There should be that desire, that longing in us. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? Teaching them, make disciples, teaching them to what? Obey everything I have commanded you. Did he not say that? And so this this saving faith, this transformation, leads to a life that is indeed uh, a meaningful life, and it is desires to obey the things of God. This is inherent. There is inherent in that new life the impulse to obey. There is inherent in that new life the impulse to obey. It is built into us. So here we are. Forgiven? Yes. Transformed? Yes. With an impulse to obey. And here we have the impulse to obey served by a series of commands that Peter outlines for us in these verses we just read, verses 7 through 11. Three commands, three things that characterize the life of a Christian. This passage comes to speak to the heart where obedience is the deepest desire. If this passage doesn't speak to your heart, if these three things, as we've been talking about them these past weeks, don't speak to your heart, if there's not the deepest desire to to read them, to meditate on them, to receive them, you need to question whether or not you have been saved. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Because these passages speak to that heart that longs to know God's word and longs to obey God's word. That's the desire. And that desire understands the word that says his commands are not grievous. They're not burdensome. That heart that longs to obey understands and can relate to Jesus' words My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a whole different perspective. God has worked that in that person. And Peter in this passage is instructing us in the principles, the commandments, the summary, if you will, of what it means to be a Christian and Christian living. Beloved, we do not fight it, we desire it. Would you agree? We do not resist it. We long for it. We do not debate it. We obey it. Teach me, Lord. Speak to me, Lord. Open your word to me. Lord, teach me. I long to know your word, and I long to obey your word. That, beloved, is the mark of transformation. That is the mark of transformation. Now, in verse 7 of our passage, you remember that Peter gave us the first First of all, he gave us the incentive. What's the incentive? The end of all things is near. The implication is what? He's talking about the return, the imminent return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. He says to us, in effect, live as if Christ were coming back at any moment. There's incentive. Incentive, if we are living that way, to embrace these other dynamics. 
So then from the incentive, he moves to the instructions. And again, these are commands that come to an eager, to a transformed heart. And the commands basically fall into three categories. Who remembers the first category? Personal holiness. Personal holiness. That has to do with our relationship with God, doesn't it? Peter talked about being clear-minded and self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. And what's prayer? Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is being in intimate, close fellowship with God. In other words, having a holy life which enhances our communion with a holy God. So if we are clear-minded, we're self-controlled, it implies holiness to our life, does it not? Last week we looked at verses 8 and 9, the second of our dynamics. That has to deal about love, doesn't it? He says, love deeply. Love deeply. He talks about the fervent kind of love, the deep kind of love, that can only cover a multitude of sins. Two people, okay. Now as we come to verses 10 and 11, we want to look at the third of these dynamics. We're going to talk about service. Service. So we're to maintain a holy relationship with God. We're to maintain loving relationships with others. And thirdly, we're to live a life of service. This, beloved, sums up the Christian life. Would you agree? Holiness to God, love towards one another, and serving each other. That really does, bottom line, sum up the Christian life. Now the question is, how is this service to be rendered? If you look with me at verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to what? Serve others. Peter says that we're to be ready, we're to be busy serving one another. We're to be busy serving one another. You start with the right vertical relationship. You start with the right horizontal relationship, rightly related to God, rightly related to one another. And that engages you in a life of effective service. If I can say it this way, inward holiness leads to outward love, which produces spiritual service. Those three dynamics, again, go hand in hand. Inward holiness leads to outward love, which results in spiritual service. Spiritual service without inward holiness, spiritual service without outward love, is nothing more than hypocrisy. It's nothing more than legalism. It's quite simply a sham. It's a fake. You say, but how am I to serve? Now, what what you need to know is that word serve is a, is, a, is a very humble word. It's a very mundane word. It literally means to wait on people. It's used in Acts chapter 6 of the deacons in the early church who waited tables. Marcia, aren't you glad to know that? You can serve Mark. And so it's a very, very humble word. It really does mean to wait on tables. It means to to take the lowest, humblest serving position. Again, verse 10, each one should use whatever gift, and the gift is the tool for service. This is how we serve. We use whatever gift God has given us to serve. We are to serve through the means of some special gift. The question is, what is the gift he's talking about? But before we look at the gift, we need to look back in our text. I want to take one piece, if you will, at a time that deals with spiritual gifts. We're going to do a little series on spiritual gifts. First thing I want to talk about is the extent the extent of these special or spiritual gifts. Again, from verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift. In that verse, we find the extent of this giftedness. Each Christian basically has a special gift. 
Each Christian has a special gift. As we call them spiritual gifts, every Christian has a spiritual gift. That's what Peter is telling us. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me. You see the Apostle Paul. Verse 1. He says, now about spiritual what? Gifts. Now about spiritual gifts. Drop down to verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts. So we know that there are spiritual gifts. This is what Peter's talking about. And there are different kinds of gifts. Look at verse 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So to each Christian, a manifestation of the Spirit or spiritual gift is given and given for what? The common good. In other words, every believer has Spirit-given spiritual gifts to be used for the common good. For what? Serving one another. That's what he's telling us. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, he says, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. So again, we see that the Spirit gives these gifts, and he gives them to each one. Every Christian has a gift according to how the Spirit determines. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. The church is described by the metaphor of a body, isn't it? And just as a human body is made up of many parts, so the church is made up of many parts. Every Christian, in effect, is a part of the body of Christ and is given a gift that makes them unique they fit into the body of Christ in a very unique and special way. Look at verse 14 again. He says, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many parts. So all of us, if you're, if you're truly born again as a Christian, you have a spiritual gift that is essential for the overall functioning of the body of Christ, the church. Look back at verse 11. He tells us the Spirit gives them to each one. He gives gifts to every Christian universally, but we are individually gifted, which means that each of our gifts is unique to us. Each of our gifts is unique to us. When the Spirit of God gives to every believer gifts, He gives them individually to every believer, absolutely peculiar to that believer. Nobody else has the same kind of gift that you have. Isn't that interesting? Tremendous. Now, if you look at verses 8 through 10, you see some of the spiritual gifts listed there. Just read them with me. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, the ability to speak in different kinds of tongues. And still, to still another, the interpretation of tongues. So there's a, there's a list of spiritual gifts that Paul gives us in that passage. Turn over to Romans chapter 12 real quick. There's another short list, and there's some overlap in this list. Verses 6 through 8. Again, Paul, using the metaphor of a body, speaks about spiritual gifts. Verse 6, he says, we have different gifts. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now, if you read those two passages, there's only about a dozen or so gifts listed 
in those two passages. And, and there's been debate about how many gifts there are. Uh, the point is that Paul lists roughly about a dozen. The question is really, how are you going to divide How are you going to divide a dozen gifts between millions of Christians and make them all different? That seems on the surface to be a real dilemma. Well, let me tell you how. There is a tremendous latitude, if you will, in the definition of these gifts that are listed in these passages. There's lots of latitude here. This is almost as if Paul, in in those two passages lists those gifts as broad categories. So think of those gifts as basically broad categories. They're like colors on a palette. If you ever watch somebody paint with oils and they have a palette with, with, with number of colors on that palette, these gifts are like colors on the palette. Each gift would be a color. And as God takes his brush and paints you, and as he takes his brush and paints me, he dips into different color categories and paints each one of us a unique color. Do you see God with his palette of colors? And he's going to dip into that brush into all these different colors and paint us each uniquely? You and I are not the same as each other in that sense. We are different Even if you had 15 people, you had 20 people, you had 5,000 people, all who had the gift of teaching, you could have them all teach. And guess what? They would all teach differently, wouldn't they? They would all teach differently. They all had the same gift, but they would all what? Use it differently. They would all teach differently. The question is why? Because, again, the category of gift is just that. It's a category. We've got these categories of gifts. We've got these broad uh, generalizations in which God uses to make us all unique. There's an interesting verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says that we have according to the measure of the gift of Christ... According to the measure, that's the literal translation from the Greek text. The idea is, I believe, he measures out that gift to us, whatever gift, he measures it out in different ways. According to the measure of the gift of Christ. You might have a gift of teaching. You might have a gift of mercy. You might have a gift of service, a gift of faith, or whatever. But the measure with which you are given that gift will vary. Will vary from somebody else with the same gift. We have many people in this church with the gift of teaching. But that gift is is worked out differently in each particular case. Just the the pastors who who are on our staff who who do the majority of our teaching. And you've had uh, visibility of all of them. And we're all different. Would you agree? But that doesn't necessarily mean that that, that we don't have a particular gift in that case. So you have a measure of the gift. You have a measure of the gift. Not only that, but in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says that when God gives the gift, he also gives the measure of faith to operate that gift. So I have a, I have a measure of the gift, and I also have a measure of faith to operate that gift. So we have our gift measured out. We have the right amount of faith to operate that gift measured out. A measure of faith is linked with the measured gift for effective use. So while all of us have gifts, the Lord is making every one of us unique. We are all incredibly unique. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verses 4 4 through 6. This, again, speaks to this idea of uniqueness and the variety. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Incidentally, you have a passage right there that addresses the Trinitarian God in which we believe. Do you see that? But what's he saying? He's saying, The gifts are different in terms of their measure. 
He said the ministries are different. You may have a gift of teaching, but that gift of teaching works its way out in a different way than maybe somebody else. And maybe it's for a different ministry. You're teaching in a different environment than is that other person. And the effect of that gift will be different, though it may be still basically the same gift. Am I making sense? Someone says to me, and I hear this a lot, they say, well, what, what, are, you, what's your, what are your spiritual gifts? What, what is your spiritual gift? And, and I can identify what I think are some things that will make up what I would call a gift mix. But it's very, very difficult to separate them out to this and this and this. My spiritual gift, if I can say it this way, is that which I do to serve Christ and his body. That's my spiritual gift. Whatever I do, whatever I find myself doing, whatever door God opens for me, whatever grace he gives me, whatever gift he measures out to me, whatever I do to serve him, that's my spiritual gift. Now, it may include teaching, it may include preaching, it may include exhortation, uh, any number of things. And your gift will be a combination, maybe a combination of other things. But it's you, this is so important, it's you who is absolutely unique. Absolutely unique. Even Timothy, even Timothy, this is tremendous, who did so many things, he preached, he taught, he did the work of the evangelist, he counseled, he exhorted, he had to demonstrate leadership again and again in his life. He had all of these capabilities rolled up into one thing. All of these manifestations rolled up into one thing. But when his gift was addressed, it was addressed as if he had only one gift. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect your, what? Your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. It's as the gift is, is singular, but you look at his life and you look at all that he did, and he was so uh, gifted that all of these things really were rolled up into one gift. So you have, I have, if you are a Christian, you have a special gift. It's a combination of colors, as it were, on the palette of giftedness that come together to make each one of us incredibly unique. You are special. You are unique. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are special and unique. There is nobody like you. Tell them there's nobody like you. Absolutely no one like you. So if we, as we've rehearsed these few verses, as we're thinking in terms of service, and we serve through the vehicle of our giftedness, we want to remember that the extent of spiritual gifts is that everybody has them, and you've got one that nobody else has. Unique, 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 unique. And so you take that unique gift in a unique ministry with a unique effect, with a measured amount of grace and a measured amount of faith, and then you add your physical capabilities, your training, your background, your opportunities, your environment, and all your influences, and you function like nobody else. You serve with all of that. Whatever it is, that's what you serve with. And it's very important for us to remember that when you don't serve, there is nobody who can take your place. There's nobody else who can take your place. Why? Because your ministry and the place that God has carved out for you the works that he's called you to do. He planned before he ever created the world. No one else can fit your place. No one else has your giftedness. No one else fits that place except you.
And so guess what? With that giftedness, if you're not serving, if you're not using that gift, and no one else could fit in there in your place, that leaves the body of Christ, what? Disabled, doesn't it? Disabled. Do you see how important it is? If we're talking about living the Christian life, And if we're saying that the Christian life really is a transformed life, and it's composed of three major summary dynamics, a personal holiness, a love that is so great, so deep, so fervent, that it covers over, it doesn't point out, it covers over sins. That it's a hospitable love. And it's a life that is marked by service and service through the equipping of God for the building up of His church. That's where we are. Now, next week I want to go on and talk a little bit more about spiritual gifting. We're going to expand on this idea of spiritual gifting. But I want you to understand three things. Personal holiness, fervent love, and service. What are they? What's the first one? What's the second one? And what's the third one? Service. And service to the agency of what? To the agency of spiritual gifts. Does everybody have one? Everybody has one. I'll give you this week to begin to think and pray. If you don't know what your gifts are, what your gift mix is, we'll begin to talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, for the purpose of your church. Thank you for working in us. Lord, thank you for saving us. But Lord, not just from our sins, but transforming us and giving us a new hope and a new life. Thank you, Lord, that we do have a new life. And Lord, we pray a special prayer for Mark and Marcia. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon them. You would strengthen them. And indeed, as they move away from us, Lord, and they find themselves in a new community, a new church, we ask you, Lord to just build a hedge of protection around them, cause their lives individually and as well together as a Christian married couple to bring you glory. Father, we love you tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and let's praise God and thank Him for gifting us. I will serve. I will pray. Come, your will be done in each day. May your love overflow in me as a witness to the world that I'm your child. We're one body, joined by love. Bye.